0: But today, uh, if you have your Bible, turn in those to 1 Kings chapter 11. We are in our third week of a six week series called Piecing Together the Bible, where we are trying to capture the picture or the whole plan of God for the redemption of mankind over the entire Bible. So let me just put it in a, a sentence. We are trying to cover the Bible in six weeks which means that each week in this series is going to be very intense. Now, I've never heard of any preacher in any church ever spend time in the pulpit doing a survey of the entire Bible. I'm sure somebody's done that. Uh, There's no really new idea, Um, but we are doing that. And why are we doing this? It's because of our mission as a church. And uh, we often just look at individual passages and pieces of the story, but we're spending time just trying to capture the whole. Today we're reading from 1 Kings chapter 41 through chapter 12, and where we pick up in the story of Israel, Israel, or Solomon, is on his deathbed, and his son, named Rehoboam, begins to take the throne. And when Rehoboam takes the throne of Israel as king, he sets in course a civil war, which divides the nation into two nations, and sets the course of the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament. I'm starting at verse 41. I'm using the New American Standard 1995 edition. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and whatever he did and his wisdom, are, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel was forty years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Verse 1 of chapter 12 of 1 Kings. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt where he fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called to him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made it hard for us. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which you put upon us, and we will serve you. And then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me, so the people departed Verse twelve. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed, and saying, "Return to me on the third day." the king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advisers of the elders which they had given to him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, "My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah, the Shiloh knight, was tough, to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Verse 17, and this is kind of where the event happens. Now as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent, sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee Jerusalem, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Verse 20. And it came about, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all of Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. Now when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all of the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, why? Because of civil war, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you must, not, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing came from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. And thus begins two nations. Thank you. Today, as, you've, as I've already shared, is part three of our six-week series called Piecing Together the Bible. Uh, but my plan today is to really, at, at first unpack the history of this time period, and then to unpack the prophets. So my sermon today is going to be in two parts. Part number one is the history, and then part number two, we will talk about the last 17 books of the Old Testament called the prophets. So I would encourage you to buckle up today. Uh, But as I was unpacking this section of scripture, there was a theme that kept bubbling to the surface, that we see in the prophets, that we see also in the kings and the returns from Babylonian captivity. But before we get in too deep, let us kind of remember where we are in the story or in the picture of putting the Bible together as a whole. Two weeks ago, we began this series. Uh, We began by pulling a Vince Lombardi, if you remember that story. He was the Green Bay Packers coach, and he was speaking to these professional football players, people that knew the game of football, and he brought them all the way back to the fundamentals by saying, this is a football. Well, this is a Bible. And what you see, if you were to open the Scripture itself, you would see that the Bible has essentially two parts. You have the Old Testament, and then you have the New Testament. You have the Old Testament, which contains 39 books, and the New Testament contains 27 books. And then what's the central theme?" For the entire Bible, if you could put it in a nutshell, is God's pursuit of mankind's redemption. That in the Garden of Eden, what happened, that we introduced sin into the world. And at the very moment of time, God promised a Redeemer, a seed that would come from the woman that would bruise his heel on the head of the serpent. What does that mean? That a Savior, that a, that a Messiah will come and will conquer sin and death. And then the book of Genesis that we talked about two weeks ago breaks down into four main events. There are the first four events of the ten that we will discuss in the Old Old Testament time. Event number one was creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Event number two was the fall of man seen in Genesis 3. Then we saw Noah and the flood, Genesis 6 through 8. And then we had event number four, which was Abraham and the birth of the nation of Israel. If you remember that story... Abraham is introduced on the scene in Genesis chapter 11. He is promised to become a great nation in Genesis chapter 12. And then the rest of the book of Genesis kind of unfolds how his name, how his heirs become a great nation. In a way, Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob. In a way, the nation of Israel kind of began with Jacob. And God turned Jacob's name to Israel, which means wrestling with God, which we know that the whole history of Israel is that. Wrestling with God And can we just say all of our lives are wrestling with God But moving on Um, And then Jacob now named Israel Has twelve sons Which later become the twelve tribes of Israel If I've lost you, I apologize We're going to keep on going Okay. So event number five is Moses and the Exodus So then, if you remember that story Jacob and his twelve sons Make their way down to Egypt Why Egypt? Because they're the only country with food Essentially, there's a famine in the land And then Jacob and his 12 sons populate over 400 years. They create a nation of 2 million people living inside of the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh has the brilliant idea to enslave them. And then Moses leads his people out of Egypt into the desert for 40 years. And then we have event number 6, which is the conquest of the promised land. Moses hands the baton to a guy named Joshua. Joshua then leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. Into a land flowing with milk and honey, and then what happens after Joshua and they conquest the land? Then you have a period of the judges. There are four hundred years of the judges. I believe there are twelve judges in total that God would appoint a judge. Some of the famous ones are Samson and Gideon. There are a bunch of other ones as well. That the nation of Israel would sin against God, God would send them an enemy, then God would appoint a judge to free them, and then they would be freed, and then Israel would forget, and then sin, and then the cycle continues over a period of 400 years. And then, you come to event number six. Now, event number six is really the turning point of the entire nation of Israel. Because to this point, Israel is a theocracy, that God is their king, that God is their ruler, and their land is kind of judged Government is through the priest. And then they decide, well, we don't want God anymore as our king. We want a human king. So then event number six is the coronation of the kings. You have three kings under the United Kingdom. You have Saul, and then a guy named David, and then you have Solomon. And then Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, and that's where we pick up today. So until this point, there has been one nation. And then when Rehoboam gets the throne of Israel, that is when Things, bad things happen, so to speak. Um, but this week, I was reflecting upon the Old Testament, and, and this is where I pick everybody back up again, by the way. Okay, um, so I was kind of piecing together the Old Testament, and I really came across a theme, and, and my appreciation for God just grew as I unpacked the history. I appreciate his character and who he is, because if you think about this world, Think about everything under the sun. This world is a place full of broken promises. There's not one created thing that could fully keep their word. Let me give you an example. Uh, the other week, my wife and I went to Sam's Club, okay? And uh, we didn't just eat at the snack bar and like the dollar hot dogs there, but we bought uh, glasses and they said on the box that they were unbreakable. So what does everybody do when you have an unbreakable glass? You try to smash it into oblivion. And this is it right here. Sorry, Laurel, uh, for smashing one of your unbreakable glasses. And I just had to see if this cup would keep its promise, and it didn't. Friends, there's only one thing in this universe that can keep his promises to the ends of the earth. But the question is, we all know the answer to that question, that God keeps his promises. But my question for you today is, how do you know? How do you know 100% certainty that God is a God who keeps his promises? There is a piece of evidence that we see even today and in the Old Testament that we will unpack today that assures me in 2021 that the God of the universe, the God that created Adam and Eve, the God that created the nation of Israel, that the God who promised everything to me in Romans 8, in the book of Ephesians, the book of Revelation, that he will certainly make sure everything that he has promised us will come to pass. What is that one piece of evidence? With that in mind, turn in your Bible to First Kings chapter 11, and we will unpack that theme. As I've kind of mentioned already, part one to this sermon is the history, then part number two is the prophets. So far, we've looked at events one through seven, and then today we will look at events eight, nine, and ten of the Old Testament. Event number eight is the divided kingdom, and if you have your notes in front of you, I would highly encourage you to grab them. If you have not, at least on your way out, you have the references to the sections of time right beside the event itself, so you can kind of understand and track along with the scripture itself. So let us begin with event number eight in the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom happens in 1 Kings chapter 11 and then in 1 Kings chapter 12. And this one event sends shockwaves throughout the rest of the history of Israel in the Old Testament. That Rehoboam is stubborn, he does not listen to the older people in his nation, and he decides instead of lightening the load of the Israelites, he heavies, he lays more burdens upon them. And the impact of the civil war can be felt through the rest of the Old Testament the impact of the civil war of Israel cannot be understated. Let me, ask, let me draw an illustration for you. Think about the shockwaves that we feel today about our own civil war. Now imagine if the South had won. Imagine the shockwaves and the impact that that would have had. The impact that we feel today is the same impact that they felt back then in First Kings chapter 12. And it's the divided kingdom. I'm not going to read the whole section of scripture because I know that today I'm going to struggle for time. So I'm just going to revisit what happened. Rehoboam comes to the throne after his, after his father Solomon dies. He doesn't listen to the elders, and then he decides to he- lay heavy burdens upon his countrymen. And then what happens, a guy named Jeroboam then peels off the top ten tribes of Israel. So then there's Jeroboam over the northern kingdom and Rehoboam over the southern kingdom. To kind of put it in a timeline for you, David comes to the throne about a 1,000 B.C., Solomon in 971 B.C., and then the divided kingdom happens in 931 B.C., and it stays as a divided kingdom from 931 B.C. until 722 B.C. Think about that. That's a period of 209 years. I did that off the top of my head. Is that correct? Think about how long America has been around. Less than 250. So as long as America has been around, they have experienced two different countries But then what happens? You have the divided kingdom under Jeroboam and Rehoboam, you have nineteen kings for the northern kingdom and zero good kings, you have twenty kings of the southern kingdom and eight good kings. But then because of the evil that happens in the nation of Israel, because the prophets are constantly we'll talk about the prophets are constantly saying to them, Turn from your evil ways, get rid of the idols. Because they do not, then God allows Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom And this is the account in, in 722 BC The account of Assyria conquering the northern kingdom Leaving the southern kingdom to, uh, to rest This is 2 Kings chapter 17 In the twelfth year of Ahaz King of Judah, Ho- Hoshea, The son of Elah Became king over Israel And Samaria and reigned nine years He did evil The king of Israel did evil In the sight of the Lord Shall this will be easier if I spoke Hebrew, a uh, king of Assyria came up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid tribute, but the king of Assyria found conspiracy in him who had sent messengers to the king of Egypt and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year so the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land of the northern kingdom and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years in the ninth year of Hosanna of Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria and carried Israel into exile to Assyria. So, okay, let me put it in perspective. So 1 Kings chapter 12 is when Rehoboam comes to power. That is 931 B.C. And then we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 17. That happens. The northern kingdom is deported to Israel and they disperse among the whole known world at this moment. That happens in 722 B.C. So let me put it in perspective for you. From 1 Kings chapter 12 to 2 Kings chapter 17 that that period is a period of 200 years and in that time there is a north and south kingdom so Elijah Elisha all happens when there are two kingdoms so then God allows Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom but preserves the southern kingdom which is also known as Judah for another 136 years but why did God punish the northern kingdom it says this in 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 2 it says, the king did evil in the sight of the Lord. How many of us have heard that before? It's the same problem as always, that God hates sin and loves mankind. And l- listen to me, friends. God hates sin and loves us enough to punish us for our sin. That God, lo- God hates sin and loves us enough to punish us for our sin. But can I just say something in a culture where we have this uh, meekness that we don't really like to... Discipline. It seems like in our culture, my generation, but that's really not being loving. Let me let me ask the parents in the room. A loving parent, do you permit your child to do whatever they want? Please say no to that. Okay, so you do not permit that. Why? Because you love them. You punish your children when they disobey you. On Tuesday night, my family and I went to Chick Fil A. And my three-year-old Olivia, I was walking out of the Chick-fil-A, about to cross the parking lot. And, of course, I told my three-year-old Olivia to hold my hand. Now, but what does a good three-year-old do? She runs away. So then she runs away across the parking lot. And, of course, I'm terrified, right? And I, of course, grab her hand and I punish her. Why? Because I don't want her to face the consequences of her own decision of sin and wrong. It's the same with God. That God hates sin and loves us, and he does not want us to face the dire consequences of our sin. Therefore, God punishes us. We have consequences for our actions. And that's what we see in the whole history of the nation of Israel, that God loves Israel so much that he would send them oppression and Assyria and Babylon in 586 B.C. to punish his people for their idolatry. So to put it all in perspective, Abraham is in 2,000, Moses 1,500, David is in 1,000, event number 8 happens in 931 B.C., then the northern kingdom is deported to Assyria in 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdom remains as its own country and entity for another 136 years until the year of 586 B.C. It is drinking from a fire hose this morning. I hope you can keep up. So, event number eight is the divided kingdom. Event number nine is the deportation of Judah to Babylon. Let me just pause for just a second and just make, put a little note in your mind that I hope you remember. That all of the prophets, all 17 books of the prophets were written after the divided kingdom. So that kind of puts it in perspective. That all of the prophets written, the last 17 books of the Old Testament were all written after the divided kingdom. So when we come to event number nine, the deportation of the southern king, event number eight, the northern king is, kingdom has already been gone for 136 years, and then poor Judah is sitting here with only one or two tribes, and only a handful of people, and they're facing the Egyptians and the Assyrians, and then God sees the wickedness of Judah. He sees the wickedness of the southern kingdom, and he decides to punish them for their idolatry, and this is in 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 10. And this is the account of event number 9. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants, and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive. In the eighth year of his reign, he carried out from there all of the treasures of the temple of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut them into pieces all of the vessels of gold which Solomon king of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord just as the Lord had said so then you read in 2nd Kings chapter 24 you continue on you read the whole story of Judah being deported to Babylon so event number 9 happens 931 BC in 1st Kings chapter 12 and event number event number 8 happens there and event number 9 happens in Second Kings chapter 24. OK, let me catch everybody up. What happens after the southern kingdom is deported to Babylon? There is then 70 years of Babylonian captivity, if you remember that story. And then while Israel is in Babylonian captivity, what happens? Babylon is in control there, the world power at the time, and then the Medo-Persians then conquer Babylon and then take over control over the world, which is why you have Daniel being in Babylonian captivity, and then at the end of the book of Daniel, you have him under Persian rule. So then you have that going on. So now then when we enter Event number 10, it is the Persian kingdom that has conquered the Babylonian kingdom. And then event number 10 is the returns, and that's a plural word. The returns from Babylonian captivity. You have three returns in the Old Testament. The first return is under Zerubbabel to the promised land in 537 B.C. The second is under Ezra in 457 B.C. And then third and final return is under Nehemiah in 444 B.C. Event number 8, divided kingdom. Then Judah stands alone until Second Kings chapter 24, then they are deported, and then there's 70 years of Judah being deported to the nation of Babylon, which turns into the nation of the Medo-Persians, and they begin to return in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 7, and Nehemiah chapter 1 are the three returns from captivity. But before we jump into the prophets, I want to kind of unfold for you kind of the historical books that this that we I get this story. I'm not making this stuff up, believe it or not. Uh it, it is the story in first Kings, first second Kings, First Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That those are the seven books that record this history of Israel. The book of first Kings begins with Solomon's reign and records the building of the temple. In first kings, you have famous kings like Ahab and Jezebel. You have also famous characters such as Elijah. Second Kings is really part two to the divided kingdom history. And then you have the book of 1st and 2nd Chronicles that we, we, we kind of think of things as a um, chronological order but 1st and 2nd Chronicles just kind of mess that all up. 1st and 2nd Chronicles are probably the last books written in the Old Testament because 1st Chronicles comes after 1st and 2nd Kings but 1st Chronicles rewinds to the, ro- to the reign of David and kind of parallels 2nd Samuel and 2nd Chronicles is the historical account of the kings until the deportation of Judah. And then you have the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra records two returns. The first is under Zerubbabel, which I've already mentioned, and the second is under Ezra. And what what is that book specifically about? Not only does it record the deportations, but it also urges the nation of Israel to rebuild the temple. And then you have the book of Nehemiah, What is that story about? Nehemiah himself is the Jewish cupbearer of the Persian king, which tells you that the Persian king loves and trusts Nehemiah. So then Nehemiah has a burden for his people. And then Nehemiah leads to return in 444 B.C., and then he finds the city of Jerusalem in shambles, and he sets out to then rebuild the walls. If you're in the middle of a rebuilding project, that book is a good one. It will warn you of what is to come. But then the book of Esther. uh, If you've never read the book of Esther, it is a wonderful book. It is the only book, to my knowledge, in the Bible that does not actually mention the name of God. But it does see, you do see the power and the sovereignty of God working through the story. What is the story of the book of Esther? You have the Persian king. He gets rid of his wife named Queen Vashti, if you remember that. And then he needs a new queen. So then he finds a Jewish woman named Esther. Esther then becomes queen in Persia. And then you have a man named Haman who hates the Jewish nation. He is building a set of gallows so he can hang the Jews from it. And then Esther then finds out about Haman's plot, then tells the king of Persia, and then thwarts Haman's plans. And I think the book of Esther is really a great study on the the topic of leadership. Esther is a book on leadership. You see four different kinds of leaders. You see the king, you see Haman, you see Mordecai, and then you see Esther. But I want to, before I go to the prophets, I want to kind of draw us back to my original question that we asked today. How do we know that God keeps his promises? Think about all of the promises that God has given to you. In the book of Ephesians, the book of Romans, the book of Revelation, how do you know 100% certainty that all of those will come true? How do we know that God keeps his promise is the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel confirms to me that God is who He says He is, that God is a God who loves, and that God is real, that God is sovereign, that God is working out the redemptive story of mankind, that God will keep everything He has promised us in the scripture itself. And what is the evidence? The evidence is the nation of Israel. Because they still exist! It's incredible! I mean think about what the nation of Israel has gone through. They've gone through at least three genocides in their in their time. The nation of Egypt tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. Haman and the Persians tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. And then Adolf Hitler in the twentieth century tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. And they still exist as a nation. Incredible. Think about it. they have been deported three times. The nation of Egypt. They've been deported under Assyria and Babylon. and They have been deported under the first century of Rome. And yet they still exist. The nation of Israel confirms to me that God is who He says He is. That now are they are the nation of Israel. They're there in the nation of God. But God also keeps everything that He has promised them. And think about the promises of God to Israel and to us. That God's promises extend beyond our own sin. because think about it the nation of Israel has sinned since the very beginning Abraham gave his wife away Okay, I mean, goodness gracious, the promised wife, the one that was supposed to bore his son Isaac, he gave away. Okay, so talk about sin, and Isaac did the same thing, and then Jacob was wrestling with God. And think about the story of the judges, they're constantly going after other idols. And then the kings are constantly going after other idols. But God's promises extend to Israel beyond their own sin. Now, he punishes them for sin, but his promises remain. God's promises go beyond sin and go beyond boundaries. Israel is the only nation to have been deported three times and still exists. I mean, think about this. Think about all of the nations in the world that have fallen and Israel still remains after 5,000 years. You have the USSR, Yugoslavia, Prussia. All these countries in the world have fallen, but Israel remains. God's promises extend beyond sin, beyond boundary, and beyond time. There are promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 some 5,000 years ago. And the fact that Israel is still a nation tells me that the promises of God extend beyond all time. So that is my soapbox for today. Okay, part number two is the prophets. So that's where we're going to dive in for the rest of our time together. And I will do my best to exit by noon if you have on your back of your note sheet, there's an extensive treatise of kind of every single book that I talk about today. So if I do not cover it in the, in the way you wish, I would encourage you to study more. But let us kind of just define what a prophet even is. So we have 17 books that in the Old Testament, and they're all called the prophets. You have the first five are called the major prophets, and then you have the minor prophets, but they're all of equal value. Okay, let me just say it that way. Um, but then you have, what is a, let's just answer the question, What is a prophet? A prophet was a spokesman of God. That A prophet, when they spoke, they spoke the very words of God. You see often in the prophets a phrase that says, Thus says the Lord. What is the history of the prophets? The actual Hebrew word prophet is the Hebrew word navi. The word navi is used 315 times in the Old Testament. 300, let me put that in your brain. 315 times in the Old Testament. Okay? Only 15 of those times come before 1 Samuel. So from 1 Samuel to the end of the Old Testament, that word Nevi, prophet, is used 300 times, which tells you something. What does that tell you? It tells you that the role of a prophet becomes more and more prominent as the kings live and as the kings reign. The first prophet, the first mention of Nevi is in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7, is referring to Abraham. The standard of a prophet is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 13. I plan to read that, but I probably will not. But Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, essentially says that if a prophet doesn't, speaks for the Lord and does not become 100% certain, 100%, then you stone him to death. But then we also know the ultimate prophet of God, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, is prophesied through Moses. The ultimate prophet of God is Jesus himself. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, along with being Savior, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, to name a few. And what is the message of an Old Testament prophet? Really, there's two. If you read every Old Testament prophet, all 17 of them, you will see, in some capacity, in some extent, two themes. Repent from your sin, but God will restore you. Over and over and over and over again. I imagine God would get so nauseated. I am so grateful that God keeps his promises and that God is endlessly patient. Because God again and again and again tells the nation of Israel to turn from your sin, turn from your idols, but restoration is coming. So that is essentially the theme of all 17 books that end the Old Testament. But let's talk about the specific books themselves. Okay, The book of Isaiah. Is the lo- second longest book in the Old Testament, besides Psalms, but is shorter than Jeremiah by word count. The book of Isaiah is in two parts. You have part number one, which is the retribution of God, chapters 1 through 39. And then you have the restoration of God, verses, chapters 40 through 66. And you have very two very famous passages, a lot of fa- very famous passages in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Then you have Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53 Which promises the suffering servant Which we know to be the Christ That comes to bore the sins of the world Then you have the book of Jeremiah the Jer- Jeremiah was written to the southern kingdom Before deportation Jeremiah once again warns of Judah's pending sin And the pending disaster that's going to come If they do not repent But then it, it tucked away In the book of Jeremiah You have the new covenant Which is a beautiful passage in Jeremiah chapter 33 Then you have the book of Lamentations The book of Lamentations audience Was the southern kingdom after deportation So Jeremiah was written before deportation Before Babylon Lamentation was written after Why? The book of Lamentations is a book of lament Quite literally Jeremiah who wrote Jeremiah Then laments at the fall of the city of Jerusalem That his countrymen are now deported to the nation of Babylon And he probably is saying the whole time In the book of Lamentations I told you so And then you have the book of Ezekiel, and I'm just going to pause real quick. There is so much in each of the prophets, there's no way for me to even scratch the surface in 45 minutes. And there is no way to scratch the surface of one prophet, probably even in a year. The book of Ezekiel is written to the southern kingdom before and during the deportation. Ezekiel was written over a period of 20 years so some of it is before Babylon comes and some of it is written after Babylon comes. You have the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is very unique among the prophets. Actually, the book of Daniel is not included with the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. It's recorded in the things written. Why? Because it's a historical account. The first half of the book of Daniel records the history of Babylon being deported. Or Uh, Judah being deported to Babylon and then the Persians taking over. Daniel also, the second half of Daniel is prophetic and apocalyptic. And when you combine that with the book of Revelation, along with pieces of Ezekiel and Zechariah, you begin to see the end of all time and what happens in God's redemptive plan. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Uh, I'm glad I am not Hosea. If you know that book, That book is a mess. Um, Because Hosea marries a woman named Gomer. If you remember that, she is an adulterous woman. And she constantly cheats on Hosea with other. And Hosea is constantly bailing her out of trouble. And God commands Hosea to marry Gomer, knowing exactly what Gomer will do. And then why? Why would God command Hosea to marry Gomer? It's because... It is a depiction of Israel's own adultery to idols. And let's just be honest here. We each here today struggle with our own adultery to idols. Joel, the book of Joel is written to the southern kingdom before deportation It records a very long treatise on the day of the Lord If you've heard of that reference in theological terms The day of the Lord is a day of punishment We know that to be during the tribulation period of the church The book of Amos is written to the northern kingdom If you have your note sheet, by the way, I'm going to give you a little cheat sheet If it says the audience NK, that means northern kingdom Which tells you when it was written It was written before 722 BC, by the way You have Amos, who was a shepherd who warned of God's pending judgment despite the northern kingdom's economic prosperity at the time. Obadiah, very short book in the Old Testament. It is one of three prophets written to a foreign nation. It's written to Edom, the Edomites, which is Israel's neighbors to the east. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. So you have the nation of Israel's descendant of Jacob, and then the Edomites are a descendant of Esau. And then Esau probably resents the nation of Israel. And then Obadiah warns them if they continue to oppress the nation of Israel that they will be punished. And then we come to the book of Jonah. Jonah, quite literally in the Hebrew, his name means dove. Probably because he flies away like a dove. His audience was Nineveh. Nineveh was an Assyrian city before Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. We are all familiar with the book of Jonah, most likely. It tells the story of a prophet seeking escape from God. Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh to preach repentance. He wants to go to Nineveh to preach condemnation and fire and brimstone that God will punish them for their sins. So Jonah runs. The book of Micah is written to both the northern and southern kingdom. It is written to warn the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of pending disaster and the idolatry that cancers the land. The book of Nahum, uh, the book of Nahum, is the book that Jonah wished he would have written, because Nahum is one of three books that is written to foreign nations. You have Jonah's one, Nahum's one, and then the book of Obadiah. Nahum is comes a hundred years after Jonah, and Nahum is pronouncing upon the city of Nineveh judgment and condemnation for their sin. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, the southern kingdom. People call Habakkuk the grandfather of the Reformation because we find in Habakkuk 2 verse 4 that the righteous man shall live by faith. That then Paul then pulls into Romans chapter 3 in which Martin Luther then reads in Romans chapter 3 beginning the Protestant Reformation. Zephaniah, southern kingdom before deportation is written during King Josiah's reign. Haggai is one of three post-exilic prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all have them post-exile and post-return. Haggai is encouraging the nation of Israel that has returned under Zerubbabel. He is encouraging them to rebuild the temple and reinstitute worship, the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is also after the return of Zebulon and is... Once again, encouraging the nation of Israel to rebuild the temple. And then Malachi, his name means Malachi, means my servant, my messenger. book of Malachi, Haggai, and Zechariah are all post-exilic. all have to do with worship. Where Zechariah and Haggai encourage the nation of Israel to have returned to rebuild the temple. Malachi, instead, is kind of a little bit later. And he is encouraging the nation of Israel to actually worship in the temple correctly. And to take care of the temple. So that is, in a nutshell, not a really small nutshell, but a giant nutshell, the book, all the books of the Old Testament, the last 24 books. But before I close, I would just like to kind of sum up three different things I want you to walk away with. Some of you here today need to be reminded. Some of you need to be warned. And some of you need to be encouraged. Some of you need to be reminded. Friends, a lot of us, and, I'm, and I mean this, a lot of us are walking through difficult trials in life. It's like almost every other day I hear about another Calvary person that is just walking through something tremendous and painful, sickness, family crisis. You need to be reminded of the goodness of God and His sovereignty That God is real and that his promises that he has given to us will come to fruition. And the evidence that we have today that he keeps every promise he has ever made us is the nation of Israel. If you're walking through a difficult time, you online, you in this room, if you're walking through something that you never thought you would, just remember the goodness and the love of God. But some of you here today need to be warned. Just like the nation of Israel, again and 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 again. God warns them for the sin that is in their life, impending judgment from God for their idolatry. God does not take sin lightly. Because we live under an era of the new covenant, we have grace and we have a relationship with God that cannot be broken. Many of us kind of feel like we can do whatever we want, but that is the farthest from the truth. That God hates sin and loves us so much that he would punish us for sin. If there is sin in your life that we see in the prophets, if there is something in your life, an idol, then repent, turn before God brings judgment. And then some of you need to be reminded, some of you warned, and some of you need to be encouraged, and all of us perhaps today need this one. I hope that you walk away today encouraged by the very nature and character of God, that he is who he says he is, that he is sovereign, that he is in control, and that he is working out all things for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. That is what I have to share with you today, and we will pick up when I come back. And next, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the message of your scripture. And I know that today was uh, spanning 500 years in 24 Old Testament books. And uh, Lord, I know this was a tall task. Uh, but Lord, I, I thank you for your word and, and, and this message of your love for us and your redemption and your pursuit of us and your sovereignty and that your will will not be thwarted. We thank you for the message that we see in the nation of Israel, that you hate sin, that you take it seriously. And Lord, I pray that we would not keep it around in our lives, but that we would recognize it, and that we would repent, and that we would ask for forgiveness from you. And we would take it out of our lives and set it aside. Lord, I pray that we would examine our life and the idols that we bow down to every day the idol of capitalism and wealth, the idol of ourselves over you, whatever idol they are. Lord, I just pray that we would be mindful enough to see it as you would. I thank you for this church. Lord, I I just pray for us. I know so many of us today are just walking through a difficult road. I pray for those today that are walking through something that they never thought they would. I just pray that you would comfort them, bless them, show them, your path and your way. And I thank you for this church, and then I can get away with preaching 24 books in one sermon. I thank you for this church and our dedication to the scripture. Bless the rest of this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.